Well, good morning, everyone. We are in the middle of our Amazing Grace series, and today we are going to be talking about how God's amazing grace can transform our suffering. So I hope you're locked in and ready to go because I am. But before I get going, I got to be honest with you guys. I don't think I'm that well acquainted with suffering. I think I've had a pretty easy life. I mean, yes, sure, I've been sick before. I've had to go to the ER at some point, and that was not a fun time. When I was seven, I broke my arm because I was jumping on the bed and I fall, fell off. That was a moment of, of pain for sure. I've been stressed about money, been suffering in that area before. I had a loved one pass away, someone who's close to me. And I felt like I couldn't hear God's voice sometimes, which is almost suffering in its own right. But I don't think I've suffered, but I know that some of you have, or some of you currently are. Some of you are sick, or you're worried about someone you care about who's sick. Some of you are stressed about money, and you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from, or you're wondering how you're going to pay that bill, or you're, you're still trying to recover from the holiday expenses. Some of you are grieving a death, or you're preparing to grieve a death that you know is coming. And some of you feel like you don't hear God's voice and you haven't heard God's voice and only God knows how long. And you're either at a loss for what to do next or you're about to give up. And that's not to mention the thousands of other ways that we suffer when we witness suffering in our world and in our city. Poverty, drug overdose, abuse, human trafficking, Suicide. Sometimes our suffering is too much, and it seems like God is not responding. So what are we to do? Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. It will also be on the screen if you don't want to look it up in your Bible. I must go on boasting Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses." Though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger, messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are speaking to us through it. Open our minds to hear you and soften our hearts to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
we read this verse, or I guess looking at this, the, the last part of the verse, my power is made perfect in weakness. When I'm weak, then I am strong. And it's such a popular verse when life is hard. We see it plastered on the front of journals in the Christian bookstores, or even in Walmart, because we live in West Texas, which is the buckle of the Bible belt. We see it on bumper stickers. We see it written on bathroom mirrors in dorms or res halls. But I would say that the reasons that we find it so encouraging are so shallow compared to the true meaning and implications of how God's grace can transform and redeem our suffering. Before we get into that, let's give a little context to what we're reading here, because we know the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us. We have a lot to learn from it, and we can obey, we can hear from God and obey him because of scripture, but we know it wasn't written to us. And so let's, let's think about or learn some of the context here. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he has a pretty complicated relationship with this church. With this church. There is a church of believers, of Christians, who have been converted, and they're now following Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at some point, some of Paul's opponents came in and convinced this church that the the gospel that Paul was preaching was not the true gospel, or that Paul was not a true apostle. And so a lot of the church turned from following the true gospel and from doing what Paul told them to do, and they were following his opponents, and they were following a false gospel instead. And so thanks to 1 Corinthians and another letter that's mentioned in, I think, 2 Corinthians as well, the majority of the Corinthian church turned back and they were following the true gospel again and they were listening to Paul and not his opponents. But there is still a small minority in the church that wasn't following the true gospel. And so the purpose of Paul writing this letter was to strengthen the faithful majority, to build them up in what they knew to be true, and to offer the rebellious minority one more chance to repent before he returned to Corinth. Because he was on his way back, and he was like, hey, this is your last chance. If you don't repent, if you don't come back to the true gospel, you, something's going to happen, because I'm coming back. And this, this letter is a big deal, and the history is complicated, because the main thing that Paul's opponents were arguing was that Paul had suffered way too much to be a true apostle, because they were looking at his life, and they are like, if you really loved God, you wouldn't be suffering as much as you are. And so they were calling into question his testimony and his calling and saying that you have suffered too much to be a real spirit-filled apostle. And if you were a true apostle, you would be boasting about all these great things that you're doing, about all these great things that God's telling you. Like they were boasting. And we do see Paul boasting. But it's not in any of the ways that anyone expects him to. He boasts about his suffering and his weakness. If you look a few verses before this section that we just read in chapter 11, he's boasting about the times that he's been imprisoned, when he's been beat, when he's been stoned, when he's been in not just one shipwreck, but multiple shipwrecks, when he's gone hungry and when he's gone without shelter. And reading this, I think in our limited understanding and our human understanding, we can see this almost as a game where Paul is trying to one-up. Like, oh, I've had it worse, so you need to feel sorry for me. How many of you have done that before? How many of you are really bothered when other people do that before? Like, oh, man, my, my 
my head hurts. And I'm like, oh, I can't even like see my head hurts so bad. And you're like, okay, but I'm sorry you feel bad, but also I feel bad too. Or man, my kid has the flu. And like, oh man, all five of my kids have the chicken pox. And you're like, that's pretty rough, but also like my suffering's valid too. And so reading Paul's account of all the things he's suffering in and all the ways that he's boasting in his suffering can come across like that. But in this section that we just read in chapter 12, we see what he's getting at. We see what he's doing. And we arrive at the main message of the entire letter. But before going any further, I want to answer some potentially distracting questions. Verse 2 says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Anyone else distracted or wondering what the third heaven is? Yes. Well, let me tell you, in my research and my preparation, because I was really distracted by that at first too, is that is the cultural understanding of where God resides. So from their understanding, there was the first heaven, which was the atmosphere, so where the clouds are, the air that we breathe. The second heaven was above our atmosphere, which was the stars. And the third heaven is the heaven or the atmosphere beyond the stars, which is their understanding of like where God resides. So don't get distracted by the third heaven or paradise because that's not what Paul's trying to say. Another potentially distracting thing is in verse seven, to keep me from becoming conceited. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. What is this thorn? What is this messenger of Satan? How can we identify it so we can guard against it? Sad to tell you, but this has been debated on since it was written. Most commentators take the position that it is impossible to know what the thorn is. And then they proceed to try and tell you what they think it is. And there are wildly different accounts. Is it a physical thorn? Is it a, is it a spiritual thorn? Is it a mental or emotional thorn? But we can't get hung up on this because this is not what Paul is wanting us to focus on. And I think for this sermon and in, in this point, it's not what I want us to focus on either. Verses two through four. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Reading through this, it sounds like Paul is talking about some friend that he had. Someone he met maybe soon after he was converted. A a believer that maybe he walked with or someone he met, or someone he converted, that got to experience this awesome moment of being caught up into the third heaven, caught up into the place where God resides, and receiving these visions and revelations. But Paul is speaking of himself. He's talking of himself, and it reads kind of confusing for us, because Paul's talking about himself in the third person. But he's doing this to keep with the overall message and theme of this passage, that he will boast in his weakness because his strengths are not his. They're God's. So boasting in these visions and revelations, boasting in being caught up in the third heaven, caught up into paradise, is exactly what his opponents are doing, the followers of the false gospel. And it's exactly what God has told him not to do. 
And so he will boast about himself in the third person. He will boast about the kind of man who receives those visions and revelations. But he won't directly say it was him because he is boasting in his weaknesses. And he wants to direct all praise and glory from himself to God. And we can compare this to his opponents who brag about their own strengths. Paul makes it clear that if he were to boast about the great and awesome things that he's done, that he's seen, that God has shown him, that he wouldn't be wrong. Think about how much of the New Testament Paul has written. Think about the church planner that he was, the disciple maker that he was, the evangelist that he was. We wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for Paul. So he wouldn't have been wrong to boast in some of the great things that he did and the great things that God showed him. But where would that lead? Think of what you know about humans. When we see something great, we want to follow it. Paul becoming conceited, which the word is literally exalting oneself, would lead to people idolizing and glorifying Paul instead of God. Think of the influence that Paul had in the early church. If he had, and this is obviously purely conjecture, conjecture based off of what I know on the human heart, but if Paul had allowed himself to become conceited, if he had allowed himself to boast in his strengths and what God was doing through him and, and doing with him, how easy would it have been for people in the church or new believers to start following Paul instead of following Jesus? So Paul was very aware of the fact of his tendency that he could be conceited and the tendency of the human heart to worship everything other than the one we were created to worship. Verses 6 through 7 says, Though if I wished to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. What's amazing about being created by God, our God that we believe in, is that we believe that he knows every single detail about us, about our lives, because he created us. So if he created us, then he created Paul as well. And he knows that Paul has claim to boast about how great he is and the great things that he's done and how far he's come. I mean, think of Paul's testimony. God knows that Paul's flesh would lead him away from honoring God and into honoring himself. Just like our flesh does the same thing. Thus, the thorn. And we see that Paul learns not just to tone down his boasting, like, okay, my testimony is really great, but I have this thorn to keep me humble, so I'm only going to bring up my testimony one every four letters that I write. Or, oh my gosh, this vision, ah, this is so good, but I'm only going to tell three people instead of five people. He doesn't just tone it down, but he completely redirects his boasting from, from those great things to his weaknesses because of the thorn that keeps him humbled and focused on who really deserves the glory. Yeah. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. 
Paul doesn't seem pleased with being humbled by the thorn. And he wants God to take it away. It was uncomfortable. It was painful. It was inconvenient to his life and his ministry. How many times have we prayed for something to be taken away for any or all of those reasons? I have, slash currently am. Like I haven't been learning my lesson as I've been preparing this sermon and letting it sit with me. How many times have I prayed and pleaded with God? You know, not just the haphazard, like, oh, by the way, God, if you would take this away, that'd be great. But intentionally got down on my hands and knees and just like, Lord, please take this away. I feel like I'm dying. Take away this pain. Take away this discomfort. Take away this inconvenience. I do campus ministry as my job, and it's great. But I also work with humans. And humans can be inconvenient sometimes. And sometimes those inconveniences feel like they're keeping me from doing the ministry I know God has called me to do. But if you think about it, that doesn't make sense because my ministry is to the people. It is for the people, the same people that are inconveniencing me. And yet I pray for them to be taken away or I pray for the situation to be taken away because it hurts me, because it inconveniences me. And for you, you are not full-time campus missionaries. Only three of you are full-time pastors. What do you feel like is inconveniencing you and your ministry? You don't meet with college students on a daily basis. Maybe you don't have a platform to preach a sermon like this. But what is a thorn in your side that is causing you pain or inconvenience, or suffering in your life or your ministry. And it's understandable that we feel this way, but our perspective on suffering has got to be bigger than that. Because suffering sometimes doesn't go away. Verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The first part of this verse literally translates to the grace of me suffices you. The grace of me suffices you. And I think we see the word sufficient or suffice and we're like, okay, I'm mostly familiar with this in a really negative term, when it says insufficient funds. (laughs) That's never fun. (laughs) But suffice, sufficient means to assist or to suffice. God's grace suffices us. I know I keep saying that. It's enough. It meets our needs. So when we see that insufficient funds, you don't have funds that suffice the need for whatever you're trying to buy. But God's grace 
suffices all of us. Every need that we have for the power in weakness is perfected. This verse uh, in verse 8 gives a lesson, gives us a lesson in prayer. First lesson that we can see is that grace, the grace that will be given if the thorn is not removed, will be of greater value than a direct answer to the prayer to remove it. I'll say that again because it's kind of wordy. The grace that will be given if the thorn is not removed will be of greater value than a direct answer to the prayer to remove it. Because God's grace suffices us. It is greater than any answer to any prayer that we could ever pray. This is also a good lesson to learn. It might not be good that the exact thing we pray for should be granted to us. It might not be good that the exact thing we pray for should be granted. So when we think about our suffering and our pain and what we're pleading with for God to take away, it might not be good for God to answer that prayer in the way that we think he should. Because... We can't know exactly and perfectly what's best for us. If we did, we would be God. Or we wouldn't need God. If we knew exactly and perfectly what was best for us, where does God come in? Because then we can just make things happen on our own because we know what needs to be done and we know what's best for us. But we don't know that. And that's the, not the magic, because it's not magic, but the beauty of our relationship with God. Because he knows what's perfect and best for us. Mm -hmm. Lastly, what we can learn from this verse is that God often has something better in store than an immediate answer. One of the things I've learned in my 27, almost 28 short years on this earth is that God is not concerned with making me happy, but making me holy. And so if he has not responded to my pleas, to my bribes, to take away the thorn that's in my life, I can trust that he has something better for me. And that's not just the religious cliche, like, oh, God is, God is good. Like, just trust him. He has a plan. We can trust him because he does have a plan. But I think even more importantly than him having a plan, he has a purpose. And his purpose, purpose is to make us holy. We can, we can learn and take heart in the fact that Christians never lose anything by suffering and affliction. You may lose your job, you may lose a loved one, your health, money, whatever you lose. But do you lose anything? We can also be encouraged that the Christian is actually a gainer by trial. Because the things that we gain by going through trials and sufferings are much more valuable than what we lose. We see that God doesn't remove the thorn from Paul's side. And Paul doesn't just learn to live with it or survive, but he embraces it because of God's sufficient grace. God's power is not less perfect. 
It's not incomplete without our weaknesses, but it's the areas and times that we're weakest that are the greatest opportunity for God to be glorified because either he shows up and it's awesome and it's great and it's supernatural or he doesn't and we're faithful. The thorn wasn't taken away from Paul's life. And sometimes the thorn will not be taken away from our lives. But the strength will be given to bear it. Verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I look at this, and looking through the list in in chapter 11, right before this section, and I look at the things that Paul endured, or not just endured, but was content with and took pleasure in. I'm like, man, that is a lot worse than anything I've ever experienced, and a lot worse than anything I probably will experience. And so reading this verse and reading this passage of scripture and looking at Paul's life, it's really easy to look at it and just be like, man, okay, if Paul can do it, so can I. If he can suffer for the sake of Christ, then so can I. If he can withstand all of this, then I can do it too. But I think Paul would be disappointed and hurt that that's where we arrive at. Because remember, he boasts about his weaknesses, so we give God the glory. So modeling our life after Paul's, looking at all the things that he endured and saying, okay, if Paul did it, I can do it too, is exactly what Paul is not wanting us to do. And it's called moralism. It's called works-based salvation, where we try and do all that we can to earn our way to heaven, to prove that we're good enough, to earn God's love as if that's a thing that we could earn. But we have to stay as far away from that as possible because that's not the gospel. God's power and provision and his amazing grace rests on us today. And in our weaknesses, we have the choice. Rely on God or rely on ourselves. We can try and, you know, insert like, oh, well, I'm going to try and be like Paul, but that's not really an option because that's ultimately relying on ourselves. And what we see is that relying on God makes us stronger than we can ever be on our own. So when we're weak and we rely on God, then we're strong. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of the call to preach the gospel and make disciples. Paul denies himself. He does something contrary to human nature by boasting in his weaknesses, and he relies on God. And the depth of this final verse that I think we miss, when I am weak, then I am strong. It sounds very poetic. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's very paradoxical. When I am weak, then I am strong. We see the, the phrase, I am, twice in our language. But the original language uses two different words there. The first one is, I might be weak. The second 
is I exist. Making this verse now read, we might be weak, but we exist strong. We might be weak. We might have momentary weakness, momentary afflictions, momentary sufferings. We might. But we exist strong. And this is actually the same word, the I exist word. When I first was doing the study, I thought, I was like, oh, this makes me think of when God is talking to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asks, who do I tell them that you are? Who do I tell them sent me? And God just says, I am. And it's not actually that word, sorry to lead you on, but it is the word, it is the phrase that Jesus uses every time he makes a claim about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I exist as the way, the truth, and the life. There is no separating what Jesus is saying from the truth that he's claiming. So in this verse, we might be weak, but we exist strong. And there is no separation between what we are saying and the reality of what we are claiming. We exist strong because of God's amazing and sufficient grace. A quote from a commentary that I read on this verse says, See here the power of religion. It not only supports, it comforts. It not only enables one to bear suffering with resignation, but it enables him to rejoice. Philosophy blunts the feelings. The pleasures of the world have no power even to support or comfort in times of affliction. But Christianity furnishes positive pleasure in trial and enables the sufferer to smile through the tears. Paul's opponents thought that Paul's weaknesses disqualified him. But Paul argues that his weaknesses are the very means by which believers were comforted and that God was made known to the world. Paul's suffering was the means that God used to to reveal his glory. And God has the same in store for us. He can use our suffering to reveal his glory, to minister to others. But let's talk about your perspective on where suffering comes from. There's essentially three views. The first view is that all bad things come from the devil. Therefore, our response should be to resist and rebuke him. And if the problem persists, it means you need more faith or that your faith isn't strong enough. So if you believe all suffering, all pain, all bad things that you experience come from the devil, your response is always going to be to resist or rebuke it. And if it keeps happening, then it means you're not doing something right, your faith isn't strong enough, or that you don't have enough faith. The second perspective is that all bad things come from God to teach us, to humble us, or to discipline us. Therefore, our response is to accept our circumstances and pray for patience to endure them. And if the problem persists, it means we haven't learned our lesson. So if you believe all suffering, all pain, all bad things come from God to teach you a lesson, then you're going to just pray for patience to endure it. And if it continues, then wonder why you haven't learned that lesson that you're supposedly being taught. 
But the last perspective on suffering is that all bad things come from the devil, but are allowed by God to transform us into the image of Christ. Therefore, our response should be to resist and rebuke the enemy while we allow God to conform us into his image. All bad things come from the devil, but God uses them for our benefit and to glorify him. When scripture says that God works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that includes us. We can trust that God can cause all things to work for his glory and for our benefit. And the main benefit is our sanctification. And that's a big Christian buzzword. You might not know what it means, but it's basically the lifelong process of being made into Christ's image. It starts with salvation because you can't begin to look like someone until you are redeemed. You can't begin to look like Christ until you have been redeemed and brought into right relationship with God. So that's where it starts. But God brought about, through, God brought about salvation through the weakness of Christ's crucifixion. And in turn, Christians can find strength in Christ and not ourselves. And as we walk this out, as we take the thorn in our flesh, whatever that is, as some thorns are taken away, as we walk through suffering and pain and affliction and trials together and with the Lord, we can be more like Christ. Our greatest hope in our current suffering, our current trials, our current thorns, is that it can make us more like Jesus. So don't be so quick to pray that hard thing away because there is something better than relief and it's grace. Instead of pleading for God to take away our suffering, we can be content and take pleasure in what he's working out in us, how he's using us to bring people to him and how he's using us to glorify his name above our own. God's amazing grace can transform our weakness and our suffering because of the suffering Christ endured on the cross. Receiving the elements of communion is a great way to remember Jesus' sacrifice and celebrate even through our current pain. It's a chance to deliberately and intentionally place or replace our trust in him because if his grace is sufficient enough for our sin, it's sufficient for us in whatever we're facing now. So at this time, I invite you to come forward. There's communion elements on each side. As you hold the bread and the cup, meditate on God's amazing grace that transformed our ultimate suffering and sin and the sufficiency of his grace for you now.